welcome to Howard Waters Journal podcast. I'm Matt Sapinski, the publisher and host of this podcast. And uh, on our podcast, we promise to take you where no other podcast has gone before. We're not going to bore you with a lot of craziness. We're going to we're going to get you in the in depth to the details, to the techniques, to the skills, uh, presentation, science, habitat, fly patterns. Um, we're going we're gonna to get down and dirty. We're going to get to the heart and soul of the passion and the journey for all things trout, salmon, steelhead, fly fishing. And we pledge that you will rethink your relationship with these magnificent creatures uh, that we all love so much. Um, we're going to be hosting some really cool people that are really intense. They have some passion that is bordering on steroids. And it's just, it's just refreshing to see that after all these years these icons of fly fishing still get so excited about what they do. Um, this is the first of a six-part series called The Big Brown Hunters, um, the Truda Buddhas. And in the first edition of Hollowed Waters podcast, um, we um, we talked about these people that are just, they got the karma, they got the zen, they got the magic. They're out there every day. They're fishing in all kinds of weather. Um these are people that are just so impassioned by these big brown trout and by Salmo Truda in general that mm. they're sort of like Buddhas. They're sort of like iconic figures. And uh, today we're going to be talking with um, the first of our part of the series, uh, the great night stalker, uh, Tommy Lynch. Uh, this man uh, just woke up. He just got done um, chasing 20-inch browns last night on his little beloved river. And uh, we're going to get into some some good details about in our series about how to hunt big browns and uh, where to look for them and what kind of behavior and what kind of habitat they're into. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of cool people. And uh, we hope you uh, spend some time and enjoy us. Um, we're going to also entertain questions from our readers that come to Hollowed Waters Journal. By the way, it's www.hollowedwaters.com. And uh, so on this note, uh, I'm going to introduce um, the man that chases the, the savagery and delicacy of big browns, the fish that everyone loves and wants to catch. And uh, Tommy Lynch uh, does not need any introductions. His streamers, his mousing, his big bug hatching uh, precedes him. And um, I'm going to turn you over to Tommy. And Tommy, say hello and give us a little background. Uh, about Tommy Lynch. Uh, uh, my name's uh, Tommy Lynch. I'm a fishing guide in Northwest Lower Michigan, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm awake. <laughs> You're awake, right? So this was a major event today to get Tommy awake for a two thirty in the afternoon uh, uh, podcast, which uh, we're, we we have a little blessing that we we've been praying and it worked. So yeah, he's awake. He functions better at nighttime. So I don't think he's a normal functioning human being in the in the daylight sense. He's a nocturnal animal. He's a vampire. <laughs> so Tommy, tell us what what how did you fall in love with these fish? When did you catch your first big brown? What was the what was the magical moment? that you said, I'm going to start to become who I am uh, and, and just keep being as crazy and savage as ever? Uh, I think that's more, it's more clinical. It's more like OCD. And I'm sure there's a pill that would help me with my affliction. But um, yeah, 
uh, it's not bowling. Um, it's not as messy as hunting and, uh, and, and tying chicken is cool. <laughs> okay. So tying chicken is cool. I like that. So, um, yeah, you know, you felt, so when, when was it that you sort of, you know, you, you're on a, you're on the Pear Marquette and you got so much going on on the Pear Marquette and, you know, there's guys that just, you know, chase fish on gravel, salmon and steelhead. There's, and that's a big part of your river. It's that, that's so enamorment with, um, you know, the salmon runs and the steelhead runs and everything's paramount. Kind of sad. Yeah, I know. We've got a couple of, uh, we've got a couple of area lodges that are a little, uh, you know, kind of stuck in the old ways. And, um, you know, they're still kind of pushing the, uh, yeah, they're just, uh, they haven't, uh, they haven't quite evolved yet. Well, what, what what took you to go to, like, you know, I think of Big Browns, I think of of, of of Tommy Lynch, I think of big iconic names like Kelly Gallup, I think of guys like Dave Jensen, I think of a bunch of guys that, um, you know, the Pennsylvania boys. Uh, Mike Fisher. And, uh, yeah, Mike Fisher uh, in um, uh, out in New Zealand, I think of guys like that, and... Um, there's 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 a magic moment, Tommy. Do they even have a trout on that island that's under 24? I don't know. I, I I've never seen one. So if you if you ever see, if you ever see a boat for that, because uh, everything I see there is massive. So I don't know. I don't know how they just get from egg to massive. But well, they, and they get to fish it in some kind of dreamscape backdrop everywhere. It's uh, they're pretty lucky folk over there. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So when when did you catch your first brown? When was that big big brown trout moment? And <laughs> And, and what was the scenario? Actually, my first big brown trout was caught on a spawn bag when I was seven years old. And we were fishing for steelhead, me and my father in the lower Pier Marquette. And uh, we, we were a little bit more accustomed to catching, you know, um, steelhead. That's, that's what we were going after. But that brown trout had a different look to it. And uh, seemingly, the more of them you catch, the more of them you want to or, or the more of them, I'm sorry, uh, seemingly the more you catch, the more you've got to catch and so on and so forth. Um, it hasn't really gotten too stale. It's uh, good motivation every day. Yeah. I mean, but like you do it seven days. I mean, when you're not guiding, then Tommy goes and, and he, and he like fishes every single night. And he just, he just stalks it down and he just, it just, it is never, it is never tiring or boring for this guy. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty magical. So, you know, so that was your, your first thing. And then as you, as you were a guide, you guided for the same stuff with me, salmon, steelhead, fish on yep. ground. You went through the whole evolution. I did of, that. You know, Kelly Gallup did the same thing. He moved out to Montana and he, uh, you know, he was, he, was, here. he was he was done with the tran the migratory thing of the big salmon, the big steelhead, you know, the whole the whole lining, you know, flossing game, all that stuff. You know, we know large on the Madison now. Yeah, and now you know it's on the Madison and he's he went out there. But um so when you when you made that big switch, um, how did you get so involved in the night game? Which is really what you? I mean, you're so well. Concerned. You know, I you know, it, that's not to say I didn't do a little night fishing when I was out west. So you know, uh, whenever I made the visit out there, but uh, 
you know, in Michigan, we have so much wood in our rivers that the, uh, the fish, especially in those rivers that have migratories are allowed uh, a semi-fantastic amount of protein available over the given year. And so when they're not feeding, they're not in the bottom of some, you know, deep 200 yard long riffle run that you could nymph them out or possibly get lucky, you know, dredging something bigger. And, <clears throat> and, uh, the more data you throw at it, the more you understand that the bigger trout, especially those trout that are looking for the higher payoff protein pitch are, uh, you know, they, they are by definition, a nocturnal trout. They are not a diurnal fish. They are, uh, they are okay with feeding at night. They thrive at night, especially when the water's clear. I mean, everybody wonders why muddy, dirty water for streamers works so bloody good. It's just because the, the window of hunts open as a result of those fish's ability to sneak up on prey. When that water's clear in the middle of the day, they can't get that job done. But at night, at night, they pretty savvy with, uh, you know, with sacking and, 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 you know, so yeah, I would definitely say that nighttime offers a, a trout that isn't otherwise available with the same frequency, uh, during those daylight hours. That That's not to say that we don't get the occasional giant out of a golden stone or a big hopper or even nymph and lucky, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, I covered a couple few bends of river last night and still managed to get three fish that I couldn't get my hands around. And, uh, but I also realized that my, my attempts during the day in the same beat would probably offer up some fish, but not. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, what's really interesting. I mean, on my part, when I, when I wrote, um, my brown trout Atlantic salmon nexus book, which is sort of like a, 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 a Bible about the brown trout. And I did so much research on them. And I talked to so many scientists with Bjorn Janssen in, in Norway and Dr. Bob Bachman in Pennsylvania. And, and I, I really got nitty gritty on their behavioral issues that they have. One of the most overlying issue is, is um, photophobic uh, tendencies. Um, where where they really don't like light and their their eye capacity is not really uh, geared towards that. They also evolved in a in a uh, climate in, a, in an environment in ecosystems in the North Atlantic um, and you know the, the the rainy weather of Scotland and UK and Northern Europe and the dense forests of Europe where there was constant rainfall. So they are just by nature number one really uh, phobia driven creatures that are always seeking cover and I, I went into depth in my nexus book about it and i talked about um when i was a little boy and i, I fished the up, upstate new york streams um and then when i spent time in poland as a little boy on a farm off the baltic um i noticed that structure wooded structure definitely correlated with uh, aligned with uh, big brown trout water and then I fished these little tiny streams in, in Conowingo, New York area, Southern tier Amish country. And I heard of stories of big Browns and I talked about it. And those Amish boys would go out at nighttime and, and fish little tiny mice on big, huge saltwater spinning rods and reels. And they got some pretty big beasts. And one I talked about in the story, but in the book. Um, and so everything that you're doing, you know, correlates to all these little, 
witches' tales and all these little folk tales about a big brown living in that pool and he's eating snakes and he's eating mice and he's eating baby Children. things <laughs> and 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 a worm and a big night crawler too, uh, mm-hmm. which is which is kryptonite for brown trout. But you know, so everything you're doing, if you look at Michigan. And you look at our ground zero brown trout that we talk about, which were the first brown trout stocked in the Western Hemisphere in 1884. And they were stocked in the White River and they were stocked in the Pierre Marquette. And, and if you look at those river systems in the Manistee Forest, they're all lumber, timber, wood, wood. And so what you're doing is basically stump jumping wood and coming from one to another. And, you know, uh, it's just so perfectly aligned to, to, to the habitat to the condos that big brown trout uh, live in. So that, I mean, you, you sum up your existence by doing what they do as their habitat, which is really, really cool. Any comment on that? Jeez, I mean, you're, you're right. It's just address hunting at a certain point. I mean, uh, you know, we walk late at night to identify not just where fish are, but where a certain big fish might reside. And then, uh, you know, clients get to take a swing when I, when we come by with the boat, instead of sorting through all the salad, they get to get right to the crouton, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, so I always, I always, you know, I like to sort of equate a big brown trout or a brown trout as whole as being sort of bipolar in in their behavior. Um, you know, they, they will eat anything that will not eat them, um, They'll eat anything from a snake to 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 a mouse to to small ducklings to uh, in in New Zealand. Uh, Kirk Dieter once said he they were jumping on the banks to eat you know, like ta- tadpoles and frogs and stuff like that out of the water. And they take the frogs here. They take the frogs in that late summer heavy. That's amazing. Who'd ever think that you know? So these are all these these things that that people don't know about when they just go fishing and toss a, a nice size fourteen atoms out there that. To be a brown trout hunter, big brown hunter, you got to blend into the world. You got to stalk them. When I when I stalk them on little spring creeks in Pennsylvania, I mark their address and then work, work, work for sometimes months, sometimes years to get them. That's basically what you do, and you do it with a passion and a science that's like unbelievable. But you know, there is no um, there's no meal too big or or small for these guys. What fascinates me is that some days, I mean. They will go from eating midges and trichos to at nighttime eating mice and snakes and other big trout or other big suckers. Um, they could turn that machine on and off based on scenarios. Um, do you think that your fish in your river, do they? Do you think those big guys that feed at night, do you think they ever still mess with the hatch game or, or the trico game or the little olive game? What's your impression? I think when you get these years like that, we have a really low clear year, as you know. Um, and as a result, there are windows of night crawler bleeding from the bank events from all the rain. And, and then again, their ability to track down and smash fry efficiently um, is, is lessened in this type of uh, condition. So even though the, uh, the fish is still in the same watershed, the watershed changing forces different diets. So, you know, it's like this year on sulfurs, we did really good um, as a result. And as you know, the gray drake is a bust. So, you know, whenever the fish do get the window of protein, they'll they'll jump on it like a grenade, only because they need it right now. If you had a good sulfur hatch after a good high water spring, 
they, you know, they wouldn't give a damn. It's, it's, uh, you know, they're all fattened up on fry and crawlers and everything else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got devastated by the drought this year and it totally dried up. We had the, probably the most heaviest gray drake, Ayasiflinoris, a mayfly we've, I've ever seen in my lifetime. It was like epic proportions on a world scale and they dried up because they are shoreline emergers. So they already start migrating to shoreline in early spring. And when you, the banks dry up, you dry up the nymphs. So that's what happened to us. How about that? That's a great answer. Thanks for saying that. I wish somebody, say that again. What'd you say? So Syphilinoris start their migration from the main riffles towards the shoreline probably as early as early March. Uh-huh. Late February. So when our shorelines, we had 15, 20 feet of beaches on our river. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. Dry up. Those nymphs dried up and they just completely oh, shit the bed, man. That's so cool that you, I've been waiting for somebody to give me a good answer on that all season. And thank you. That's, that's, we, we I've, I finally got an answer when somebody says, what happened to the gray drink? Now I got a good answer. It dried up. The poor things dried up and it's all the, that water that you could actually go through with your boat. It was all dry beach. Now that was their habitat and they needed that. Yeah. No, that exposure. I see it even on the PM, that dried up beach before it gets to the lip of the undercut. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's all exposed right now. And you're right. It, it just never got wet this year. It's crazy. So. It, it's devastating, but we have to move on. So uh, we're going to take a little break right now. And uh, we're going to um, take a couple questions. We got some really great readers, uh, readers at um, Hollowed Waters Journal. And that was uh, awesome. we're gonna yeah. you know a lot about bugs. Sorry about that. That's just fantastic that you know that much about. I never knew that much about bugs. That's so cool that you just gave me that answer. I've been thinking about that for freaking two and a half weeks, Matt. Thank you. See, uh, go ahead. Say what you're going to say. Least thing I could do. I get thanks from somebody, not from my wife, though. But uh, come okay. on. No, that's good knowledge. Here. That's good but, knowledge. So, yeah, we're going to take a break right now, and uh, we're going to be back in a little bit um, with Tommy Lynch, the Night Stalker. We're going to get some down and dirty into some skinny details and uh, tactics. Okay, we're back and we're going to answer some questions here. Um, first of all, James T. from Jamesville, New York um, says, I fish a local trout river and it all I seem to catch is the large rainbows that are there. Um, never seem to catch the big browns. Any help? I see expert locals pulling huge browns out on night crawlers, spinners, all kinds of plugs. Um, I'm a fly fisherman and I need your help in figuring out what I should do, what techniques. I'm probably using the wrong flies. Um, Tommy, you want to address that one? Uh, well, if, if they're getting them on crawlers and, and spinners, then you certainly have predators. So you can keep nymphing them and it's like putting quarters in a slot machine waiting to get paid off. But, you know, uh, Eventually, you'll probably want to throw some larger streamer, um, something with some, uh, you know, uh, a little bit be better movement, something to kind of uh, coincide with, uh, you know, whatever fishing pressure is occurring, or just just go dark side and get it done. I mean, it's uh, it, it is what it is. They're brown trout, like you said, they don't like that light, and when you shut the lights off, a brown trout will be all he can be. 
Yeah. I think I know the river he's talking about. I, I, I think it's the Genesee River down by Wellsville, New York, because I used to fish that area. And it does uh -huh. produce some really nice big rainbows and big, big, really big browns. Um, and it's right on the uh, right on the New York-Pennsylvania border. And I, I fished it a couple times, and I noticed that during the day I'm going to catch rainbows, and closer to the evening and night I'm going to catch browns. So rainbows, just FYI, are not as, as uh, photophobic when it comes to light, uh, James. And uh, funny, James from Jamesville, how cool is that? Um, anyways, yeah, it's, I think it's your time of day. So if you want to concentrate on big browns, you might have to go nighttime or you might have to wait. The locals over there, I remember used to come around after they wouldn't even fish till a good del deluge or a good runoff. And when that, that river is, is a runoff river and it gets cloudy real quick. So I can guarantee you when I fished it and it was a, after a heavy rainfall for a couple of days, you'd have the, you'd have the, you'd have the bait guys and the spinner guys working that river. Cause they know brown trout come out of their, out of their shelter, out of their little, uh, tiny little phobic photo, their phobic world of fear of everything. And they get a little more gregarious and, and go on the hit, but that's it. And, and, you know, you're going to have to go for bigger meat. I mean, you're going to have to throw, you know, Tommy's drunken disorder, which we're going to talk a little bit about in a little bit, but um, you might have to change it to, or time the hatches. If you time a hatch, and your time, a, a super hatch like sulfurs or drakes, brown drakes, green drakes, you're going to get these big boys coming up. But when nothing's happening, you're probably going to get a more opportunistic rainbow. So uh, Tommy is, is, is very famous for his drunken, disorderly streamers. They are absolutely magnificent. They're a, a deer head, sculpin head style uh, streamer, articulated streamer. He's gone crazy with them over the years. He's made them into so many different variations and, and colors and styles. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I know, I know you have influences from, you know, Kelly Gallup, Whitlock, uh, you know, Ed Shank, who started the first sculpt and Ed was a very close friend of mine. I fish with in Pennsylvania. About that muddler minnow? I don't think the muddler minnow gets enough credit. I think that thing is Amen. Yeah, I think you're right. Go ahead. I mean, that. I, I think that, you know, with the, the mild ruddering and the, I just, yeah, deer is better. Deer is better. Even Dahlberg's. I mean, watching Dahlberg's first early videos for the hunt for big fish when he was throwing those things with peacocks, I thought, you know, shit, my, my leaded leech is not doing that. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you keep talking about Dahlberg all the time, and that's really interesting. I mean, you... He is a certifiable... I, I think he might be the fishiest man on the planet. I mean, like if he squeezed his head, like I think fish would come out on the table. That's what I think. That's that's as far as I can tell. Well, same with Tommy Lynch. If you squeeze your head, uh, you probably would would get a, a a Buddha from the past that was a brown trout probably two centuries ago. But um, anyways, but and also you know you talk a lot about Mara Sadoti. Uh, you know, I've I've seen Mark Sadati, yes, absolutely. Sadati in my um, in my Hollowed Waters journal in the first issue on the meat chasers uh, category, and Sadati is um, he's that's he's, why we're all throwing as big as we are. Yeah, that's, tell him about your experiences with Sadati. Well, uh, you know, he came into the the lodge uh, at the PM Lodge when I used to work there when it was kind of in uh, you know. Anyways, uh, the uh, uh, Sadati came into town. He was doing a casting episode there at the, uh, at the lodge. And, uh, I had met him, uh, and heard about him before that because he used to fish with some guys in the North, I think with Kelly and, and Russ and, and, uh, you know, several people up that way. And 
I had showed him some of the Alaskan strip leeches that we were throwing when I was guiding up there in uh, Katmai. And he says, you should, you know, be throwing those, you know, you know, variated for the Browns. And I said, well, we were tickling that stuff. But when he pulled out some of his slammers and stuff, some of the stuff he was throwing for our brown trout that he would otherwise be throwing for stripers on the East Coast, uh, you know, that's when everything went from like six inches to, you know, whatever the nine weight will throw. You know, so, <laughs> so, uh, we, uh, we definitely, uh, we, we definitely took a huge step, um, as far as, as, as and all that other stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Kelly's sex dungeon was like a, a staple pattern for us for so many years, the zoo cougar, um, you know, and, and, and all these stuff. And they all, they are all great streamers and they still great streamers. Um, but the size that we were able to start throwing and really drawing fish on uh, not just single, but two-handed retrieves, uh, being able to cover water with, uh, you know, larger strike profile uh, and, and being able to essentially draw a fish uh, that would otherwise uh, uh, not ignore, you know, upwards of a 12-inch bait fish pattern that, ooh. Yeah. So... You know, when it comes to your uh, when it comes to your drunken disorderly. So, first of all, the inspiration for the name. I think I sort of know it, but I want to. I think our, our listeners want to know it, and also the way the way you make that thing dive. And I think it, it, it's the reason why you came up with that name. But the whole design into your head is so much different than everyone else's. In the fact that you make that head perform hydrodynamically so well with the water to give it the action. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um... You know, with the, uh, uh, for some reason here, Matt, I lost the video here. I don't know. How do I? I still got you. You still got me? I'm going to go like, I'm going to go like, there you go. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, the wedge is uh, unique. You know, uh, a lot of people like to throw the, uh, you know, the head cement and the, uh, the Solaris that we use to kind of keep some durability into a head that we would otherwise have spent 20 minutes cutting and, and, and prepping up and sticking eyes on and just kind of giving it that real, you know, again, trying to bridge that gap between what makes a repellus such incredible witchcraft and why it outfishes our bunny and chicken, uh, you know, every day of the week is movement. Um, in, in consistent, uh, uh, yaw tipped, uh, random actions that uh, are all kind of bite triggers to the otherwise uh, uh, noticing brown trout from a distance. I mean, when they come in hot, they they come in and they're often chasing. I, I like to tell people when they fish a streamer to fish at every moment as if it's being watched and never be in a hurry for another cast so much as a better one. And, and that is to say that if the flies in the water, there's a strong possibility, even in Michigan rivers, that you, you are being noticed. So your ability to sell the fly um, uh, outweighs your, uh, your machine gun attempts at the suicide bite off the bank, which a lot of people, I think, these days are fishing that kind of zombie style you know, just pulling color through the water as many times as they can, as quick as they can, without really the idea that if you've ever seen a rappella fisherman go through the same body, that they would certainly show you how many fish you've missed. <laughs> I mean, uh, so 
Yeah, I mean, everybody's, uh, you know, as, as we get further down the road with streamers, as they get become more and more popular, your ability to have a fly that is uh, going four ways to your one versus, you know, uh, you know, less simple actions. You know, I was always fascinated by the way the float recovery of muddlers and cougars and, 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 and whatever else was just kind of associated with a float recovery fly versus uh, uh, something that sank and, and in its own right was a deadly way to fish a leech in their, in their kind of way they walk. But um, I think there's a difference between fishing leaded flies in their proximity to the fish, which draws the hit, the falling of that leech or lamprey style pattern into that area of a fish where they would take out that leech or lamprey before they attach, or it's just food, but it's the, it's kind of the, the falling into the fish. That is the bite trigger versus swim fly activities, which is completely like a drawing sap. I mean, you may be upwards of yards away from the, you know, the, the subject structure and the fish still comes out across the bar in, 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 in prejudice for that fly. I mean, they, uh, I mean, you'd swear that thing was calling them names, but that's in the movement of the fly. That's, that's in the, you know, you, you talk about like, you know, Blaine's game changer and, and the uh, watching how much movement is, is drawing those fish's attention, not from the far. I think color and size can bring a fish in from distance, but these days with the fish getting smarter on all fronts from small mouth to, to brown trout and everything else. I mean, um, if you're not selling the fly with some type of movement, well, you're, you may be coming up just shorter than the guy that may have, you know, kind of gotten that far. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing about, it. I mean, you, you know, look at something as simple as a rabbit strip with, with the movement that a, a, a mega rabbit strip can, can put into a material. And you look at something like double deceivers, which, you know, uh, you look at the movement on those double deceivers and it's just that swimmy, fishy, banjo minnow type look to it. You know, this is where the whole science is going, not just the stiff, you know, Mickey Finn of the old days or the gray ghosts that are kind of more stiffer. Mm -hmm. um, your, your whole, that whole trend has gone into the next realm. And, and when we talk to, uh, to, mm -hmm. to Kelly and people like that, we're going to find a little bit more about the science, but you know, Mr. The Muddler Minnow, the guy that designed the Muddler Minnow, and then, of course, um, caught the world record brook trout on it. Um, and, and things of that nature um, were the first originators of the, of the modern streamer that we know today, the articulated streamer. And then, of course, my good friend Ed Shank with his simple shank sculpin was a deer hair sculpin with, you know, chenille around the middle and some marabou. Marabou was the big gig, man. Marabou was everything, you know, back then. And Willie Bugger, what, was, what it is, is chenille, marabou, and some ackle. And the basics of that movement, I think, is the key what stimulates the fish. Okay, we're going to take a little break here, and we're going to go to another um, uh, reader that has a question for us. Uh, we'll be back in a second. Here we have Dustin G from Billings, Montana. And Dustin uh, asks this question. I fished the big hole and I noticed the big brown trout population is way down. Also, are there any tips you guys can give me for catching the big browns? Notice you guys out east fish bigger streamers 
We fish lots of attractor drives like trudes, humpies, wolves, atoms, sofa pillows, etc. Any help? Okay, Tommy? You know, the thing about those western rivers is their topography is much different than ours. And every time I went out west, I've noticed that the two-handed retrieves across those shallow bars is kryptonite. Uh, I, I have seen those fish. I mean, they're, they're very aggressive fish. They love coming into the top third of the column to kill something like big prey, which is something that we don't have here in Michigan. They really like the halfway or below the halfway point of the column to kill. Um, out west, I think their proximity to the sun keeps them a little bit more um, used to that brightness. So um, the two-handed retrieves, also, if you're on foot, try throwing upstream and using bow tension casts, using the U of the line and uh, stripping swim flies through that. Of course, you know, like a dungeon upstream jig down, that's always going to work good. Um, but, you know, those two-handed retrieves on on yeah, I, I I mean, as soon as I went two-handed retrieve, I was probably four to one on the single-handed uh, approaches that I was what that I was using out there. Yeah, and you know another thing about you know those rivers, I, I used to fish the big hole quite a bit when I was in the hotel days, and uh, it's it's a big structureless river. It's 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 a it's a rock shale gravel. I mean, it's a rock gravel river, typical of western rivers. Um, there's not a hell of a lot of wood structure there. If you found pools with wood. That those rivers get shifted around so much with so snow melt and and heavy heavy rainfalls or whatever that these fish are going to be in these buckets and pockets that are in pretty fast water usually. So um, if you're going to fish dries to these guys, yeah, you're going to fish more wolves. You're going to fish more humpy stimulator patterns. Um, they're also keyed in on that stimulator motion because there's a hell of a lot of stoneflies. I've witnessed so witnessed so many stonefly hatches. Uh, larger yellow and black stoneflies on the on the big hole. They're keyed into movement of your dry flies and stuff. So if you're fishing just dead drift flies, you're probably going to be missing a lot of opportunities. Also, um, you mentioned something about the brown trout population. There is a real problem going on out west right now with the brown trout population decline. Um, I noticed the post I saw the other day in Google feeds about how the brown trout population is down by as much as 70%. And some really? the rivers, yeah, it's it's pretty scary, and uh, they don't really know what to to blame it to or or what the cause is, but they think climate change and droughts and and constant droughts and constant high waters affecting recruitment of smaller trout, um, and maybe overfishing. Maybe these rivers they get hammered a lot. We know that you go out west and it's you go to the Missouri on any given day, and it's quite it's quite a spectacle of people coming down that river, you know. So and, and these fish don't have a lot of refuge. So if you look at our little creeks that are called rivers here, but, you know, probably else would call them creeks, they, they're structure driven. They're all in woods, wood, wood, wood. You get woods, you throw, you chop a tree down in a pool that's empty and you're going to create big brown trout habit. Wouldn't you say, Tommy? Yeah, I mean, structure, I mean, it's like condos for trout, you know, the more of it they have, the more they can kind of use those trees as a visor to kind of be in play without being out and about, so. Um, yeah, undercut banks. I mean, that's, that's the mainstay of our, and you're right, the shade. We do have a lot of trees over our, our smaller, including the Pier Marquette that keep a, a level of shade and, and comfortableness to a fish, but they're still just as moody. You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um, so here's another thing I talk a lot about in my Nexus book and I just had a long 
talk about people on, 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 on social media about marginal trout streams. And I, I talk a lot about that big browns are slumlords. I mean, they like, they like slummy type water. They like less current, no question about that, than rainbows or brookies. They, they inhabit the, the slower parts of the river. They don't, they're not a big current fan. They're kind of lazy fish. They're lazy gluttons, the way I look at them. And they don't like to get off the couch and leave their pizza boxes and Cheetos too much when they got their food. And marginal trout streams, if you know what they mean, they mean marginal that they can get to certain extreme temperatures at certain times of year. So my Muskegon can get warm in June, July. Uh, I think in the last three epic summer heat waves, all the blue ribbon trout streams in Michigan became marginal, quote, trout streams because we hit 70 or above because climate change is really having a big effect. But if you look at the big picture of brown trout, what's going to be the losing factor in this whole equation of climate change? Probably the brook trout that needs the coldest water. Um, you know, browns can tolerate water up to 78, 80 degrees in some instances. They could seek out water temperatures um, by a very sensory organ that, that allows them to pick up minuscule temperature changes and start migrating towards thermal refuges before other fish do. But this this marginal fishery always comes up, well, oh, that river's marginal. Oh, that's a marginal. You know what? What we find in these marginal rivers, and we find it on our Muskegon that grows 28, 30-inch browns, like Tommy caught one winter with uh, with Paul. Um, uh, remember that? Um, with um, you, you caught him uh, in January. Uh, down by Cottonwood Flats. Remember that huge monster? Oh, with Turner. With Turner, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, our river grows these big pigs, and there's not tons of them, but when we do grow fish, we grow very big ones because we have marginal habitat. And marginal habitat means of more eutroph more, more fertile eutrophic waters that have sucker eggs, steelhead eggs, salmon eggs, fry, craw, or crayfish, tons of bugs, tons of aquatic mayflies, stoneflies, caddis. Um, you have a constant fusion of, of, of food. Salmon fry are big, as you know, Tommy, salmon fry is huge. But the browns can migrate great distances in these marginal trout streams, and they like to go down these lower sections and eat all the bait fish in the wintertime and then migrate up for colder water. Um, tell me about the PM. You know there's some pretty damn big fish on that river, and they're way down low. And they don't, <clears throat> they don't go anywhere. I mean, they find those thermal refuges, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know, our, our trout steam uh, kind of ends at, you know, and that's not to say that you won't hear of the occasional plug or spawn bag or get one down below. Indian bridge, but in our lower ends uh, that, that are actually uh, attached to these like little uh, bayous of mini lakes, which is where these hex hatches just profusely come out of. And um, those fish down there, like you said, they find these little feeders, they put their nose right up on it when things get a little warm. But uh, the amount of crawdads, uh, uh, bait fish, in a variety of bait fish down there as the water warms, like you said, you get more uh, minnow structure and, and you have all this extra, you know, biomass of nymphs and it's just, it's more fertile as it warms up, but you don't have as many. So typically in those areas where you might find a small mouth, you might also find a larger brown trout versus say, you know, good trout stream. Now, like up on the PM, uh, uh, 
fly water. I mean, these are resident fish. They, they probably move a bend or two to, you know, get laid in the fall. Outside of that, they're within 25, 30 yards of one spot. Uh, most of their life beyond 18 or 20 inches when they kind of reside there. This assuming the log jam doesn't shift. Always notice that if you shift a log jam, you'll move residents around. Like they'll pop up in different places. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because um, I have uh, really good buddies out in Pennsylvania and Eric Richard is one of them. And he just got some regulations to protect browns, uh, big browns in lower marginal rivers and rivers that aren't even classified as trout rivers because what was happening there due to water being sucked out of a lot of their limestone springs, these fish were dropping down into like the, the, the kind of the Gwinnett and rivers like that. Um, that are not known. They're, they're brown, they're, they're black bass and, and pike and musky rivers. And the browns would drop down there in the wintertime to feed on all the chubs and the dace and all the, all the bait fish. And then they'd shoot back up um, <clears throat> the, the blue water, the blue ribbon rivers, like the Latort and the big spring and, and limestone spring creeks that are like pure blue ribbon, 52 degree water. And, and, you know, this migratory brown, it needs protection probably greatest in these lower gear, unrestricted gear waters that are allowed to fish, you know, hardware and, and bait. And a lot of the breed stock, the brooders get taken out in these low water extreme in the low, lower system extremes. And sometimes we need more protection down in those sections of river than we need for the upper sections. And I think Eric just got <clears throat> Pennsylvania to, uh, to do a new regulations for their rivers that aren't even classified as trout rivers because there's so many big browns during the winter time when they're most vulnerable and especially post-spawn browns. So you know when those browns go off to spawn, they're looking to put that weight on and they're ravenous. And Tommy, you know all about that game. Yeah, you know, I wish we had that kind of forward thinking here in Michigan. You know, in Michigan, it just seems like you know, we're, we're trying to keep this put and take dream alive with a, with a, a, a big lake that, you know, um, you know, it's, it's like I heard about some Zoom meeting where they had my face up there holding a fish caught on a drunk and disorderly saying, you know, this is not a fly. Why they never address some of the, the, the bigger issues here in Michigan, including all the special regulation water that we could afford these, these fisheries. And, you know, it was like, um, you know, I've seen a couple of these trout tournaments in, in recent days as the water temperatures get over 70 and and where these these tournaments are, are are practicing a catch and release. I just don't know how well that catch and release is occurring. Um, you know, over 70 degrees when you release them, they've embolized, they've been battled in on six pound spin gear and all this other stuff. I, I wish we had some more forward. I think uh, Michigan needs a little bit more Montana uh, uh, thinking. Than, than some of the, uh, you know, that's all wishful thinking, though, I think. I, I don't know if that's coming. Anytime. Yeah, I think the biggest problem, Tommy, we have in the state, and, you know, I'm, I'm also a, a big fan of the DNR, but I'm also a very big critic for them. And, um, you know, we, we have so much water to manage. We have so many lake systems, rivers. So we probably have more trout stream miles than any state in the country. If you monitor the UP and the lower peninsula, we have like tens of thousands of miles of trout streams. And I mm -hmm. think states that have less trout streams do better managing them than we have one biologist for the entire part of this left left hand state. And he's got 
umpteen dozens of rivers that he has to monitor. So yeah, there's no question about that. But I think the fact that we have so much water helps our, our wild fishery out. Um, let's, let's quickly take another break here uh, from another reader. And we will be back at Hollowed Waters Journal Podcast with Tommy Lynch, the Night Stalker. And we're going to get into some mousing. We're going to talk about Tommy's everybody around the world. I could talk to a guy in Iceland. And, and the first thing they'll say to me is, do you know Tommy Lynch, the mouse man? Um, bullshit. No, this is true. I'll tell you about that story uh, that I was there two years ago. And they asked me if, if I knew you. And I said, yeah, he knows me. I know him. Um, but anyways, we'll be back in a few minutes. Okay, we are back and we're going to take another question from, who's this? Cheryl K. from Cincinnati, Ohio. And Cheryl says to us, she fishes a tailwater river I fish south of me. I've always wanted to catch a big brown trout, but all I get is rainbows and the bigger browns are taken on Rapala gear. I don't want to switch to hardware because I like the fly fishing game so much. Am I using the wrong flies? Blah, blah, blah. Please advise. Okay. Uh, Cheryl Kay, I think I know the river you're fishing. It's probably, if you're in Cincinnati, you're probably fishing the Cumberland River probably in Kentucky, which produces some big, big like rainbows in the upper teens and some big browns in the upper teens. And sort of like the white where Tommy guides a lot and he knows about the white inside out. Um, yeah, guide the white. Yeah. I just took the white. Yeah, he, he, he's seen that what you're talking about, guys coming in there with big double-jointed Rapalas and uh, tiger sticks and thunder sticks and taking off these big browns out of that river. Um, so once again, here's a scenario of these guys are eating bigger bait fish. They're, they're foraging on bigger bait, the stuff that comes out of those turbines, out of those uh, hydro dams. Um, they're opportunistic in high water. If you're just casting a size 14 atoms or a, you know, a little humpy or something, you're probably not going to see these browns. You're going to probably see more of the stock rainbows. So you're going to have to adapt and, and fish better conditions. Tommy knows a little bit more about those tailwaters in depth. Tommy, tell me about, you know, I think the Cumberland is very similar to the white in that they do hydro peaking and the behavior. Yeah, of browns. Talk a little bit about that behavior there. They got like stripers and everything. I know some guys that fish that Cumberland. Uh, big white triple Ds, I've been told, have been are really good for them. You'll probably want to go to a sink tip, bump up your rod into a, like a seven or an eight weight. Um, if they're throwing repellas, um, you know, the, the answer is in the question, so to speak. Uh, you're looking for something that is a, a bait fish, a higher protein payoff. Um, <coughs> it's not like those larger trout are sorting through too many nymphs with frequency. Uh, or at least not with the frequency that you would need to 
kind of make it happen. Besides, you know, when you're looking for a larger brown, it's always nicer to have gear that would, you know, kind of cater to that larger trout. And if you do happen to hook one of those larger trout, having streamer gear on zero X or, you know, a 20 pound lower tippets off of a, a longer swim fly leader, um, that, that's a bonus. That's a bonus once you're hooked up and, you know, you've got some uh, attitude adjusting uh, potential there. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to turn our attention to Tommy's uh, super specialty, uh, mousing in the night game. I mean, he's just done so much in that area. Uh, it's amazing. And if you really want to get to know Tommy's mousing game in, in, in full detail and in, in the Zen karma mode, it's best to probably book a day with Tommy and spend a night with this guy. If you could keep up with him, make sure you do a lot of no-dos and, and practice your night owl sleep behavior. So don't go to bed uh, till six, seven in the morning. If you want to stay up with him, do a little practicing. But um, Tommy poured his heart out in uh, in my Nexus book, um, in the True to Source, the Ultimate Kill Artist chapter. He went into some serious, serious ass details uh, on what he's doing in that mousing game. So if you want a, a, a better reference to it, um, he, he, he really got in depth in it, but um, I'm just going to ask Tommy to do just a basic um, tutorial in the mousing game, but you're not going to get it all here, folks. You're going to get it by reading the books and by, by list, uh, spending a couple nights with Tommy um, because you're going to learn more in one or two nights with this guy than you will learn in a lifetime. But Tommy, give me a little, give us a little more background on, on your whole mousing Zen and karma philosophy. Oh, wow. That's, that's big, isn't it? Well, let's, a, let's keep it, let's keep it till, you know, reasonable. Question, right. That's a total Zipinski. Give me the skinny. That's a total Zipinski overload, right? Uh, do I enjoy not seeing, uh, where I'm casting? Uh, Probably not as much as if I could see where I was casting. That said, you know, we, we mouse at night because, uh, you know, whenever we gear up, whatever type of fishing we're doing, we could base our excitement uh, on the anticipation per cast. And uh, when you mouse fish, knowing um, what you know after you've done it uh, enough, um, you can understand that every time that mouse is on the water, I mean, I've, I've, Part of my French had my drawers down peeing with the rod between my legs and landed a 20 incher because the mouse was in play on the surface. A brown trout at night is, is not a brown trout that is, uh, a, a, is the daytime version. Its wariness is a little lessened. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, its predator is, is fully on point. It is, it is a mean, um, engaging critter in the dark. And, uh, and I suppose that's why we mouse is just because, uh, because we know he's looking or he should be looking, uh, much more so than if we threw the same shit in the daytime, pardon my French. Right. Uh, so listen, you know, here's another thing that I'm going to just always contest and think about is it is it really that they're actually eating that many mice at nighttime number one okay could it be that it just because the mouse profile is sort of like a waller waker it's sort of like a foam waker where it's creating enough v wake like a riffle hitch does for a salmon fly that it's creating enough commotion on the water to stimulate a brown sensory organs now one thing we forgot to talk about brown truck their sensory capacity through their lateral line 
and their nemostats in their skin cells are so of, of, of acute to vibration of any kind. They will blow away any species. There, there probably there's only one fish out there that is close to them. That's a shark. And, and they could pick up vibration from so far away that it's scary. That's why most guys don't catch brown trout because they weigh like, like clods and they don't, they, don't, they don't chill and they drop their anchor and start fishing and they move on, drop their anchor. Start. They don't realize you got to stay in a spot for a long time. I've caught in my biggest brown trout by sitting in one spot for three hours and all of a sudden Mr. Brown shows up, but he was there the whole time. So I mean, how, how do they find that, that big black? I mean, when that water is absolute pudding coming down and you still catch a giant, I mean, how did they find it? They didn't see it. You can't see your fly, you know, three inches below the surface, but that big one still finds it. Yeah. So Taranarchus, okay, ter big black Taranarchus and nighttime Taranarchus are huge on rivers. So when I was a kid, I used to fish this little creek called Wiscoy Creek, a wild brown trout, trout stream near me. And I worked in a John Deere factory in high school and I painted, uh, painted John Deere tractors with really shitty masks. And no wonder I have brain problems right now because I think it it ate out most of my brain, the chemicals in the paint. But um, I would leave work at like 12 midnight and I'd drive two hours to fish a trout stream. And I'd fish from two o'clock in the morning till like sunup. And I fished big black Kaufman stones. Like for me back then, like a size two Kaufman stones was massive, okay? Because you're fishing trichols all the time. And these fish were so keyed in on those size two big Kaufman stones. Um, so they are, they're pounding on those Taranarchus at nighttime too, aren't they? We, we will, like on the full moons when the mousing sucks, when the predator can't sneak up on shit, <clears throat> he'll go back to like insects because they can't, they, you know, the minnows and the whatever else, they just don't feel like the game's afoot. But when you go out there on a full moon, we'll throw like double goldens and stuff like that and get blown up until dawn. You know, as soon as you got stoneflies flying, they're, they're game on about it. But, uh, yeah, you know, going back to what you were asking about that, you know, do, do I think they're taking, you know, I fish a variety of different patterns in the dark. I'll go subsurface. I'll go with a dive wake beetle juice, uh, double muddlers. Uh, I'll go with like waking leeches, cone headed leeches, bumpers. Um, and, and when you ask me about the mice and their frequency to the river, you know, a lot of rivers, I think, um, you know, they have a lot of cattails and they have a lot of, uh, of lily pads and stuff like this. You know, on the Pier Marquette and surrounding rivers, we have this uh, a fantastic dreadlock of, of, of high grass that only occurs at the riverbank as a result of the canopy of the forest. So all the light in the water is right at the riverbank. So this shit gets like, you know, six, eight, nine feet tall and there's an oat on the top of it. So at night, I'll show you pictures of like... Uh, deer mice, field mice, and all this other stuff, the UPS guys here. Um, uh, all these field mice crawling out on the ends of these things, and they fall in the water. There was this one flat uh, right below the hairpin at Gleason's, I remember. This is probably about 10 years ago. And I'm not sure what was going on. I think there was a thunderstorm coming up, but I remember looking across the flat, and you could see five different wakes of mice on one straightaway, given that straightaway was probably a couple hundred yards long, but it was in the moon. And you could certainly see the mice. If you sat on the bank of the Pier Marquette, just sat there with your legs in the grass, if you sat there for about five or 10 minutes, a mouse would crawl across your legs. It would crawl right across your legs and go into the next blade of grass. That's yeah. how many mice we have. Yeah, tree shrews, mice. Yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely there. They're a big part of it. Even small snakes. Um, the Amish guys, uh, 
the kids that caught this this probably 32 inch brown in this creek that's half the size of the white uh, uh-huh. they said that they found a little duckling in in the belly yep. of the browns they got because they're they're they're, they're talking about water every spring yeah they're, they're targeting movement and they're targeting that so that mousing game you could tie you know it's not like you're really imitating mouse yeah you kind of are but you're you're imitating movement and that's why what tommy's been steadily improving in his in his drunken disorderly pattern in his mice patterns is the way they're waking that water in in fast water and slow water he has different patterns for different waters he's had different color variations and do can brown trout see at nighttime absolutely can brown trout see all i mean they're their vision is impeccable. Let's just put it this way. And people say, oh, color, color, that's all folklore. It's a bunch of bullshit. No, it's not. Color is very important because they have UV. They perceive color differently than the human eye, but they do see it. And then, you know, Tommy takes off on, on full moons because tell us a little bit about full moons. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, it's the same reason you don't go fish a big giant streamer when the water's gin clear. You go out there when it's muddy. It's like, you know, when they ask the questions, you know, why do those spinner and, and repella and worm fishermen all show up when the water comes up? Because all the brown trout came out. Once all that covers in the water, then the hunt is on. And, uh, you know, that, that full moon, when that thing comes out, you can actually start looking through the water upwards of two, three feet. of. They can't sneak up on minnows anymore, little fish, uh, crawdads. They'll sit there and patrol these elodea mats at, at night. Yep. There are these uh, big uh, marl uh, seaweedy patches along our entire bank. And within that, uh, that burl of, uh, little mini weeds, there's all these like little minnows and, and crawdads and stuff. And you'll have these, like, uh, you'll have these Browns that are doing laps in the lower river and the middle river. You'll go do laps by them. And like, it's like, what time is it? Mr. Wolf, every time they make a pass and they're like whales patrolling a beach. They're just waiting for that opportunity or that, that one prey to, you know, fall victim. But again, when that moon's bright, that hunt is off and they'll go more to a diurnal diet. That's why the hopper fishing is always gangbusters when the moon's up because they can't hunt worth a damn in the de- in the dark. Yes. You know, it's important what you just said, because my spring Creek guys, the guys that fish spring creeks, I've seen that behavior on the Latort where those guys pour out at nighttime. I know those Eladia beds and they're out looking and looking and looking and they go to bed when the sun comes up and they're pretty much done. You might catch them looking for one last morsel but they are, they are, they are crawlers. And pr- so look at it this way. A brown trout sees moonlight just like we see sunlight. To them, moonlight is about as effective as sunlight because in their pineal gland, they could pick up that sunlight, that moonlight, and, and it is literally equal to sunlight. And they just don't like it. They don't like, they don't like it whatsoever. They don't like it. And they don't like any light. That's why they come out in the evening. Do they come out in the evening? Because they come out. People say, well, I'm waiting for the evening catch. You know that. Brown trout don't really know there's going to be an evening catch. They just come out. And if they find an evening catch, bingo, they hit the jackpot. Okay? Jumped up. Jumped up. Yep. Exactly. Okay. I'm going to ask you a couple more things. We've got one more question here we're going to take. Um, so uh, we're going to take a little break right now, and we're going to come back with another reader from uh, uh, from Hartford, Connecticut. And we are with Tommy Lynch, the Night Stalker. Stay tuned. Okay, we are back with Tommy Lynch, and Tommy just said 
that he was out till 5.30 in the morning and he took the kids to school and uh, he goes to bed. So we, were t- we were laughing about him being a night stalker, but he is. And he and you know what? But he caught, this man catches more big browns than any person on the planet. I doubt I, that. Vouch, I'm going to vouch for it. But uh, Mike, Mike Fisher's got that. That that dude over there in New Zealand, that, what he's doing is... Uh, for you, I mean, an average night, three fish over 20, people don't see an 18-inch fish in their lifetime. You're like, oh, just another average night. I don't want to talk about it. Don't even don't start with me. Okay, so we're going to start with Paul R. from Hartford, Connecticut. He says, I fish the Catskills in my home state tailwaters, also a large freestone river not too far away. They all have big browns, but I'm striking out. Am I fishing in wrong parts of the day, wrong flies? Appreciate your advice. By the way, I read your Nexus book. And find it super helpful, but I'm still missing some basics to figuring this whole gig out. All right. So, Paul, uh, everything that we've been talking about is what you're doing. Okay. You might be fishing the wrong time of day. You might be fishing the wrong patterns. You might be fishing in bright sunlight. You might be fishing when the river is low and clear. These are all factors that are going to infiltrate it. Um, so, you're going to have to change your whole tune. And I'm going to just tell you right now, I think the best thing you could do is – Hunt out your local. I know a guy, Tory Collins, out in, in 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 Connecticut. Him and Nanda. By the way, if you want to read some really in depth big brown trout hunter stuff, in the first issue of Hollowed Waters Journal, we had the Leviathan brown trout, the hunt for Leviathan brown trout, the Truda Buddha. So I came up with this crazy word, Truda Buddha, which Tommy, he's the Dalai Lama. And what, is, what is Truda Buddha anyways? What Truda is that? Is a, Truda is a brown trout. A Buddha is like this Dalai Lama revered person that knows everything about them. So Tommy's oh. a Truda Buddha. A whole yeah. bunch of crazies out there like Kelly and people like that are Truda Buddhas. Guys that chase big browns, and they sort of do it because I think they were big browns in another lifetime. But the best thing you could do with this gig here is um, read as much as you can, watch YouTube videos, book time with really good guides that know what they're doing, but change your game. If you really want big fish, fish on cloudy days, fish after rainfall, fish when everything changes. When you think you got your thing down to the science and you're catching, like I know you probably, Hartford, Connecticut, you're probably fishing – the uh, the uh, the one up where Tory is on the um, on the uh, Farmington, and then you're also fishing the Housatonic, and you're probably fishing another small Housatonic, sort of like a big freestone river that has a combination of it, it has marginal water, it has really cold water, and then it gets warm. But you're fishing a lot of different styles of rivers. Just change your game, fish more nocturnal, fish bigger patterns, fish after water levels come up. So that's that's a complex question, but I think between reading books and 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 swatching people's blogs and and going to their and going to their YouTube and stuff, you know, you're gonna find a lot of information there. And just change your game. Whatever you're doing now ain't working, do something totally different. Fish bigger flies, fish different flies. Um, what do you think, Tom? Isn't smelt big over there? Smelt? I uh not really. No, 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 no. Okay. That's a very hatchy. The Farmington's a very hatchy river and, okay. and Euro nymphing is, is, is lethal there. Cause the, you know, I was talking to Johnny Miller, you know, John, you just asked about Johnny Miller the other day. Johnny says the only thing that's working on the Delaware right now, cause the hatches are down there fishing parrot, parrot nymphs, uh, Euro nymphing because I said, yeah, because those fish are eating uh case caddis. 
That's all they're doing is with these paradon nymphs is fishing case, eating case caddis. So these fish down there in those rocks are eating case caddis till they get a hatch. And then when you get a hatch come up on the farming tent, those fish are lethal selective. I mean, they put my selectivity book to shame because what they do over there. So you got to oh. change the game. You got to keep experimenting. Don't give up. Fish in, in crazy hours and you'll probably afford some luck. I'm going to end up here on one topic here. Uh, the hex hatch is coming up. Tell me a little bit about the hex hatch very quickly. Uh, hex hatch is a shopping spree. It's just like any other hatch, only this one happens after dark, which enhances the population of would-be donkeys that would otherwise give it the audience. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, the gray drake's fantastic, and we occasionally catch a couple of two-footers on a gray drake, but that happens before dark and going into dark where the hex hatch is after dark, and that bug is probably about four to six times as big. And uh, so, yeah, no, it's it's like chumming up the biggest fish in whatever section they come off, uh, throwing a quarter in the water, and you got basically as much time on that fish as it takes for that thing to, you know, it's a two and a half hour window. It's, uh, you do what you can with it. You know, there are some, uh, certainly some new trendy morning and, and uh, you know, even midday blind attempts that you could, uh, you know, factor into it, but, you know. Hatch fishing is just the window in which he kind of pulls a skirt over his head and says, make a good dead drift, you know? Yeah. If you had five tips for five quick, dirty, skinny tips for your hex hatch fishing, which is coming up soon, what are they? Oh, five dirty tricks. Don't fish directly across to your fish. Use the currents for the mending angles and also factor in the hookup angle based upon where that fish needs to be you know, uh, mandible. So like whenever you choose an angle, you want to kind of cater that hook set so that when he does eat it, you don't prick him, you get him. Um, number two, uh, try not to fish the heat of the hatches, uh, especially on the weekends, just because it's a gong show these days with the amount of people that are engaging them. Uh, you know, stick to your weekdays, try and hit the beginnings and the ends of hatches where there's less bugs and there's fewer bugs on the water to kind of make yours a little bit more worth when it hits, sometimes fishing that big pillow of blanket hatch is kind of vain and you'll end up hooking more hexes than you will fish. Um, what's another one? Uh, high stick the shit out of everything. The less line on the water, the less you have to mend. Uh, use a glow line. The indicator of that hit is often seen through the line. Um, and, and for people that think that they spook fish, well, I got uh, a few dozen two foot class fish that would say otherwise. So yep. uh, I, I, I definitely wouldn't, uh, you know, run a full nine or 11 foot leader uh, to a hex fly just because of the darkness. But uh, you know, and whenever it does get thick, run a tan. Yep, exactly. You know, and I think you touched on a really important point that third night, fourth night, the British have always been big about, you fish the the uh, the mayfly hatch on the third to fourth night because the first couple of nights they they sort of really don't know what's going on with that big hex and they're like looking around like what the hell is this I just been feeding on blueing olives or little tiny things and now all of a sudden I got this giant cyclops up there same with the with the cicada hatch it's usually that third night that they start understanding what's happening they've eaten a few they know this is this is this is feed time. This is feed binge time. And um, also waning when that hatch is waning, there'll be less naturals on the water. So you'll have more. That fish has already got a belly packed and he wants that same 
that same caloric intake. So just early in the hatch and late in the hatch is probably your best time because when they get funky in the middle of that hatch, they'll come up, take three or four or five bugs or, or 10 minutes of bugs, and then they're done for the evening. So you get a lot of weirdness there. But that's about all the time we have. Um, we'd love you to come to Hollowed Waters Journal, www.hollowedwaters.com. Uh, read Tommy's article, Leviathan Browns, the True to Buddha. Uh, we got some pretty good stuff in there. And uh, we have a whole series coming up. If you love big brown trout, it's only going to get better. It's going to be crazy. But we were with the master, the Truda Buddha, the crazy man from Baldwin. There is only one Tommy Lynch. And when he dies, you don't have nothing to worry about because he will come back as a big brown trout and he will <laughs> give you the finger for the rest of your life. Okay. So that's basically the way I think of it. But thanks so much, Tommy, for being with us. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. And uh, th yeah, that's, uh, that's, I, you are so very colorful. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. You are too. I want you to loosen up a little more, but you're good. This was, uh, this is more of the more subdued Tommy. If you want the full Tommy experience, you need to book the fish whisper.com and you will get the full load. Just get a plenty of sleep before you yeah. go. Okay. Make sure you are waiters. You're right. <laughs> exactly. Okay, buddy. Thank you very much. And this is it for us at the Hollowed Waters Podcast. Once again, thanks. And we got a whole series more coming up for the Big Brown Hunters series. Take care. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>